You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Today we're going to be talking about the coronavirus, vaccines, variants, and the path forward. And I'm joined by two timely commentators on this issue, Drs. Lena Wen and Jerome Adams, who are no strangers to Washington Post Live. A very warm welcome to you both. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, Dr. Adams, let me start with you. We have heard recently from some former Biden advisors saying that it's time to move to a new normal of living with this virus instead of combating it and trying to eradicate it. Um, you penned an op-ed yourself talking about not changing the goalposts, but uh, making sure we're not lazy on defense. What are the reasonable goalposts for the next six months? And how do we make sure that we're not lazy on defense, as you uh, phrased it? Well, uh, as you mentioned, those former Biden officials wrote several articles in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, and I've read through all of them, and they reiterate a lot of the things that Dr. Wynn and I have been saying for quite a while. We need to create realistic expectations for people so that they understand what we're working towards. And it wasn't realistic when the Trump administration said we're going to eradicate the virus. It wasn't realistic when the Biden administration said we're going to eradicate the virus. And here's why. Until we can get the planet, not just the United States, not one state within the United States, but the entire planet with sufficient immunity, we're going to be still having significant ups and downs with this virus. But it doesn't mean that it has to control our lives. We can take measures such as making sure people are appropriately vaccinated and boosted, making sure we have a reasonable testing strategy, making sure we're utilizing and have available treatments like oral antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, so that when people do get sick, they don't end up in an ICU or worse. Uh, we do have the tools, as the Biden administration has said, to be able to successfully live with this virus. We need to create that expectation among people. And then we need the public sector, the uh, government support to actually implement that strategy. So just a quick follow on that before we move on. We've seen these huge biomedical advances, including now these antiviral pills, but the delivery system seems consistently to fail us. What are we doing to support that, Dr. Adams? Well, that's a great question. <clears throat> and it's a question that I have for the Biden administration. One of the things about treatment is it relies on testing. And Dr. Wynn and I both have been uh, very, and I think appropriately and fairly critical of the administration for not having a testing strategy. It was something that we really struggled with during my tenure uh, during the Trump administration. But the honest truth is back then we didn't have the supply. Now the supply is there on a global basis. We just haven't done the work uh, from a US point of view to get tests approved by the FDA. That's one thing we have to do. We, we still don't have an FDA commissioner. We're a year into a new administration and we still don't have an FDA commissioner. And a lot of these tests really are stuck in the FDA authorization process. And we need to use the Defense Production Act as was promised to really prioritize testing. And it needs to fit into a strategy. It can't be haphazard. There's gotta be a strategy for surveillance and a strategy for making sure we're appropriately diagnosing and directing towards treatment people who are at risk. Dr. Wen, you have been advocating a new normal in schools by getting kids back into schools rather than learning remotely. And we understand many of the consequences of distant learning for these kids. 
But now we see in Chicago, again this morning, the Chicago schools are not opening because teachers don't feel safe going back. Is this a failure of messaging? Are they really not safe? What's your message to them? What are we doing wrong as a country to reassure people in this position? It's a very difficult time where we are in the pandemic because people are living in very different realities. We have some people who have never really accepted that COVID-19 is a pandemic and never really changed much of their behavior. We have a lot of other people who have done everything right, who have gotten vaccines, who've gotten boosters, who have been so incredibly careful, and some who continue to hunker down despite the fact that we are not in 2020 or 2021 anymore. And I think this is the important part of the reset. I agree completely with what Dr. Adams said in terms of how we have to come to terms with the fact that we are going to be living with COVID, that this is not going away. We have to turn it from an existential threat into part of our new normal. And part of the new normal includes acknowledging that with vaccines and boosters, the vast majority of those who are vaccinated and boosted with Omicron, um, when they come into contact with Omicron, which is a milder variant than before, that they're going to do just fine. That Omicron is going to look like a mild cold or at worst the flu to the majority of individuals. We also know when it comes to schools that we have another very important layer of protection, which is masking. Now, I just wrote a post op-ed about how politicians who are trying to ban or or bar people from wearing masks in schools, that's definitely the wrong approach. But by the same token, if you are vaccinated and boosted, if you are wearing a high quality mask yourself, even if others around you are not consistently wearing masks, you are still very well protected against contracting COVID and spreading it to others. What I think it's ideal if all schools have regular testing, state-of-the-art ventilation, and have a lot more space and have fixed or crumbling infrastructure. Of course, I, that's what we should be aiming for as a society. But we cannot keep on leaving our kids in limbo. Our children have suffered so much. The educational disparities that were already so present among black and, bl uh, black and brown children, communities that are the most most economically disadvantaged, they've only been exacerbated. And we cannot keep saying, let's wait for everything to be in place before opening schools, when we know that teachers and staff and children and their families are much better protected than they were a year ago or certainly two years ago. So Dr. And Wynn, if I may jump on really briefly. quickly, because Dr. Okay. Wynn brings, this is a critical point, and we're talking about the next six months. It is critical that we recognize the harm that has been done to our children uh, due to mental health issues, due to educational issues. There are children who haven't been identified as being victims of, of uh, abuse at home because they're not in school. We absolutely need to get kids back in school. That needs to be our number one priority. Uh, and what I've often said is that we need to, to get away from this binary all or none, every kid in school at all costs, or no kids in school until we're 100% perfect. Because as Dr. Wynn lays out, we can't let perfect uh, be the enemy of good enough. But what we need to do is really fight for, advocate for uh, recognition of those schools that are both fine to go ahead and those ones that are really still facing genuine challenges. And then we need to make sure we're getting with all speed those schools that have challenges um, up to where they need to be so that they can uh, safely reopen and feel safe reopening. Uh, it shouldn't be all or none. It should be, let's make sure we're doing everything we can so that everyone feels safe going back to school. And as Dr. Wynn said, we can't, we can't wait uh, for, for everyone to feel 
perfect about the conditions because our kids are suffering. Yeah, I want to recognize the fact that we're having this discussion from the relative safety of our own home offices and ask you again, Dr. Wen, what's your message to the Chicago Teachers Union? My message to the teachers union and to others around the country is threefold. One is we recognize the challenges that that you have. I mean, I I see this. I, I know for myself, um, both as a mom, a parent of uh, a four year old who I've decided to send back to school despite escalating rates here in Maryland, despite the school not having testing, despite not having many conditions that are ideal. Because at this point, it's not about aiming for zero risk. We can't get to zero risk. But rather, we also have to look at the risk of not having in-school instruction and the value of in-person instruction when it comes to the child, when it comes to social economic development, and also when it comes to parents for whom childcare and, and or school is an essential form of childcare as well. But we also have to recognize the real fear and anxiety that teachers have. But here is where I do think the messaging from public health experts needs to be clear. It does need to be clear that Omicron is a different variant to what we've had before. It is a lot milder, and especially if you're vaccinated and boosted, it is also that vaccination plus masking are really, really good tools for protecting the individual. And so I think that the combination of these needs to be the, the, the central point that we do understand the fear and anxiety, but at the same time, we have to counter that with the science that we do have, which is that teachers and staff are not at high risk. And in fact, schools can be some of the safest places to be when it comes to COVID-19 transmission. So Dr. Adams, this kind of uh, response among the um, Chicago teachers is of course very concerning, but is there any reason why it wouldn't spread among bus drivers and other essential workers, um, nursing aides, uh, food delivery people? And what do you think needs to be done to head off that kind of concern and mass response? Well, and, and going back to the point that Dr. Wins uh, raised, we have the tools. We know that if schools are highly vaccinated, and when I say schools, I mean teachers, students, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, et cetera, and that if we're wearing masks in, 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 whenever we can, particularly in situations that, that are ripe for, for, for transmission, and providing high quality masks, then we know that, that in, in most cases, people are going to be safer in a school environment than what they are in the general community. We've seen this play out over and over again in studies. So what do we do? We need to make sure the government, federal, state, local governments are doing everything that they can, pulling out all the stops to bump up vaccination rates for anyone who comes in and out of a school, but also within their families. Uh, because the spread often occurs at home and then they bring it in to school. So vaccine clinics, making sure you have outreach through trusted partners, making sure you're giving people time off if they need it after the vaccination or after the booster, number one. And number two, making high quality N95, KN95 mask, KF94 mask available to bus drivers, to cafeteria workers, to other people so that they can feel assured that we've done everything we can to create a safe environment for you and that you were actually safer here than what you would be at home. And we can say that with, or, or in the community and we can say that with certainty. Dr. Wen, you've referred to Omicron recently several times as less severe, but there's a disturbing trend among pediatric hospitalizations and some concern that small children might be badly affected by this uh, virus, which seems to affect the upper airways. What's your thinking on this? Do we know the science yet? Should parents of particularly young children be concerned at this point? 
Well, I am such a parent. I've got two children under the age of five. I have a four-year-old who doesn't turn five until August and a 21-month-old who was a pandemic baby and has not known anything other than the pandemic times that we're living in. And so I very eagerly await the moment when my two little kids can become vaccinated because our reality is compared to so many other families is that it hasn't really changed much for us. I mean, I'm so glad that children five and older are able to be vaccinated. I've seen so many families return to their pre-pandemic normals as a result, but families like mine are still waiting for that, that, that reassurance. Look, I think part of the reality with Omicron is that we believe it is much milder for adults, in particular those who are vaccinated. There is no evidence that in younger children, including children under five, that it's more severe. We are probably seeing an uptick in hospitalizations in this group, mainly because the overall level of virus in our communities is so high. We're seeing skyrocketing numbers of COVID cases, and those are only the cases that are reported. At-home antigen tests are not being reported for the most part, and also many people are just unable to get tested, so don't know that they have COVID and are not being counted in the official numbers. When you have a very large number of people infected, even if it's a milder variant, you end up having a lot of people getting sicker just by the, the pure numbers. But that said, I think another part of the risk calculus for families like mine with younger children is it's become so much harder to avoid Omicron. The activities that we thought were relatively safer before now all carry much more risk because of how contagious Omicron is and also how many people around us probably are infected but just may not necessarily know it and are spreading it to others. And so the price that we would have to pay to avoid Omicron is even higher than before. And many families are having the conversation as my, fa my family and I have had to say, look, we of course don't want to get infected. But that said, we don't want to keep our four-year-old out of school. And for how long? That's the other part of this is we don't know when the next variant is going to come. I agree with Dr. Adams. This is not the end of the pandemic. We could actually have Omicron or another version of Omicron in three months time, in six months, in 12 months. Are we going to keep on shutting down society, closing our schools, tanking our economy every time? I think not. And I think it's time for us to embrace that there has to be a practical middle ground where we don't shut everything down, but we are saying wear a high quality mask when you're indoors. Well, we're not saying don't let people go to restaurants or other high risk settings, but rather can we mandate vaccinations in those settings? I think it's time for us to reset our expectations and really learn to live with the virus while also hoping that everyone can become vaccinated, including our under five year olds. And key so, point for your for your viewers really quickly, because this, this is key. When you look at the kids who are being hospitalized right now with COVID, two, two things really stick out to doctors like myself and Dr. Wynn. Number one, they're unvaccinated, the majority of them. Number two, uh, number two risk factor is that they're coming from families where people around them are unvaccinated. So Dr. Wynn mentioned her kids not eligible for vaccination but she's doing all she can by making sure she and everyone who they encounter are vaccinated and providing this protective cocoon for these kids when they're in a home environment or an environment which she can control. So the number one thing your, your viewers, your listeners, your readers can do to protect kids and their ability to safely go to school is to get people vaccinated if they're eligible and for people who aren't eligible to make sure that everyone around them who can get vaccinated is actually vaccinated. That is just so incredibly important and we need to keep hammering that point home to people. That's how we safely 
reopen schools and keep our kids out of trouble. And the other point, Dr. Wayne, we talked about science. She mentioned the math. Uh, Omicron has shown itself to be about a third as likely to send people to the hospital as Delta variant, one third. But it's shown itself to be four to five times more contagious. So on an individual level, if you've got to pick between Omicron and Delta, you want Omicron, and it's going to be much less likely to send you to the hospital. But on a population level, we're still seeing hospitals being overwhelmed because one third is likely times four times as many people getting it means you still have about a 1.3, a significantly increased chance of people on a population level ending up in the hospital. And instead of looking at broad cases, one of the things we need to look at, look at when we talk about reopening schools, or reopening other places and relaxing other measures is our hospital capacity. We're back to the point where in many communities, we do need to flatten the curve because we've canceled elective cases. We're not doing things from a screening perspective that we could and should be doing for other people out there. And so that's where that pushing that pull between reopening, but also making sure we're preserving our emergency response capacity is going to play out in the next six months, or really in the next six weeks, quite frankly, in communities across the country. So Dr. Wen, Dr. Adams raised an interesting uh, term there, Delta again, of course, which hasn't gone away, although it seems to be being replaced rapidly by Omicron. Um, you've spoken about, you've both now spoken about Omicron being less severe. I have heard people saying, let's just get it. Let's hope we get some boost of immunity for it. It's a good time for me. It's winter anyway. How about a, an Omicron party? What do you say to that? <laughs> I would not recommend um, such a party. Uh, we do not recommend these chicken pox parties um, and I'll explain why. But I also do want to acknowledge that I understand where these individuals are coming from. I think the, um, the disconnect that's occurring now is that the risk to the individual who's vaccinated and boosted is very low of Omicron. But at the same time, the risk to society that Omicron poses is very high. And I wrote about this last week because sometimes there's this disconnect when we're looking at the news. We see one article saying hospitals are really uh, crumbling under the strain of Omicron. This is a crisis. But on the other hand, how does this compute that Omicron is milder? Well, the reason this computes, and I think the reason why some people are saying, let me just get it over with and get Omicron, is they're recognizing, rightfully so, that the individual risk to them, especially if they're vaccinated and boosted of ha becoming severely ill due to Omicron is very low. But what's going on is that when you have, as Dr. Adams was explaining on a population level, many people getting infected all at once, some percentage is going to get severely ill. They're going to end up in our hospitals, primarily those who are unvaccinated, but also some who are vaccinated and have underlying medical conditions. They will strain our healthcare system. In addition, if you have a lot of people out of work all at the same time in different sectors, you're going to see as we are, fire departments being in a state of emergency because they don't have enough staff um, and, and enough paramedics and firefighters. We see police departments not being adequately staffed, which is a, also a public safety, public health matter. Airlines being canceled, food uh, workers being out. And so there are major societal disruptions occurring because, occurring because of Omicron. So I would say the reasons why you don't want to get Omicron, number one, I don't think any of us want to contribute to the total collapse of our society. Um, we also don't know who we might end up infecting, not even directly, but through the chains of transmission. I'm sure none of us want to be the cause of somebody in a nursing home dying because we got somebody else infected who then infected that person. And then I would also say for the third part, 
a lot of us just don't want to get sick at all. I mean, I every season, I don't want to get the flu. If I end up getting the flu or some other virus, it ends up knocking me out. I can't go to work. I, can't, I have to separate from my family who's going to take care of my kids. There are lots of inconveniences to being out, not to mention the possibility, though small, but the possibility of long-haul COVID and long-term symptoms as well. So I'd still say that the best thing that we can do is to avoid getting Omicron, avoid getting COVID by taking common sense measures, including hand hygiene, wearing a high quality mask, uh, as, as we both talked about. But I think at the end of the day, also recognizing that Omicron is everywhere, that many people, despite taking a lot of precautions, are still going to get it. There should be no shame associated with getting it. The key is understanding that if we're going to be exposed, let's have all the protections, including masking, the vaccination and boosters, and then also coming to terms with the fact that we're not getting rid of COVID. This whole idea of wrestling with risk, trying to reduce our risk while trying to get back to things that we really care about, that is our new normal going forward. So I'm very glad you mentioned long COVID because I knew that I'd be hearing from people about long COVID if we didn't mention it right now. Dr. Adams, as a follow to that, do we have any sense that a milder form of the coronavirus will have any less impact on long COVID or could, could give us less long COVID? Well, the, the most honest answer that we that I can give you to that question is twofold. One is that we haven't had Omicron around long enough to be able to talk about long COVID with Omicron. We're literally just um, you know, six weeks out from it first appearing on the radar in South Africa. So it's really hard for us to track long symptoms. That's number one. Um, number two, when it comes to talking about long COVID is that we are increasingly finding that people who had mild infections uh, uh, initially from Delta and from previous variants are still experiencing symptoms um, months out, months out from their prior infection, years out now as we go into year three. So we really cannot underestimate, um, we can't afford to underestimate the impact of potential long haul symptoms. We hope, we hope that Omicron both being clinically less severe and also encountering more and more people who are vaccinated will lessen the chances of long haul. But it's not something that I as a doctor want to take a chance with. Uh, I actually know several people who've been infected with Omicron and who have persistent symptoms uh, weeks out from their, from their initial infection. And so uh, it, it's not something that you want to take lightly. And people who have gotten it, you know, you don't want to get the flu in any given year if you can, affo if you can afford not to. So just because you're going to get over it acutely doesn't mean that you, it's something that you want to deal with acutely and certainly not something you want to risk from a long haul perspective. Giving yourself a little bit of time, and some people say it's inevitable you're gonna get it, that may be the case. And again, we shouldn't feel bad or shame ourselves, but the longer we can push it off, the more, uh, more likely there will be testing available. There will be oral antivirals available. Um, the hospitals won't be overwhelmed, and there may even be new treatments out there. So the more we can push it off, even if it is gonna be inevitable that we're gonna be exposed, the better for us and the better for society. You have both been critical of CDC messaging, and it came to some, uh, something of a crisis last week. At the end of the week, we saw the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, taking back uh, some messaging to the CDC and talking directly in a press conference on Friday morning. Dr. Wen, is this too little too late? Is the fault with the messaging or the, or the messages themselves? Where do you stand on this and what can be done? 
Yeah, I actually think that Dr. Walensky is a fabulous communicator. I don't think that the that the messenger is the issue or the communication is the issue. I actually think the much bigger problem is the problem with the message itself. That is, if you have a policy that's problematic and convoluted, there's no brilliant messenger at all who's going to be able to figure out how to communicate this. In fact, it's only going to get more muddled over time. And so let's take the isolation guidance as a as a good example, because I think a lot of people have said, and I know Dr. Adams has been very critical of the isolation guidance as well. The I wish that the CDC had come out and really explained what is their rationale for changing the isolation guidance? Um, if they had said as an example that, hey, we just don't have enough tests. We, we're not saying that tests aren't valuable or aren't needed, but we don't have enough tests to be able to test out of isolation. That's why we cannot make an official testing recommendation. I think a lot of people would say, oh, okay, that makes sense. I'll use the test if one is available, but if none is available, here's what here's what, what I will do. Or another possible reason I think for the CDC's isolation guidance is too many essential workers are out of work and we are facing a potential collapse of our entire healthcare system and of society if we don't have, you know, um, if, if we don't have key people in public safety and manufacturing able to be at work. So I think if they said we have to maintain societal function, this is the reason why essential workers have to be um, ha have to have shortened isolation. I actually think that that would have helped matters as well to fully understand the reason behind why the guidance is being is, is being given. So I think that's one thing is being clear about the reason. If it is, is it that the science has really changed or is there a practical component behind it as well? But I think another part is so much of the CDC's decisions seem to be happening behind closed doors within a very small group of people. And those people may not always have the on the ground experience of being clinicians or local or state health officials. And I think one thing the CDC could do that would be immediately beneficial would be to start issuing draft guidance. They could issue draft guidance 48 hours or something like that ahead of the final guidance. And as a result, they'd be able to solicit a wide range of viewpoints. And that's also a way for them to pressure test ideas too, so that people can immediately come and say, hey, this wouldn't make sense because businesses might see this impact in a certain way and health departments might see it in another. I mean, doing something like that allows them to get a wider uh, array of, of viewpoints, including from those on the front lines. And I think helps to prevent some of the major Major problems that they're seeing, which again is not so much with the message itself, I believe, but rather with the underlying policy. Couldn't Dr. agree Adams, more. Couldn't have... agree more with with, with her. And, and okay. what folks, what your viewers may not know is that Dr. Wynn used to run the Baltimore Health Department, and I used to run the Indiana State Health Department. And this okay. is something that we continually uh, get frustrated about with multiple administrations when they roll out this guidance. And they expect Dr. Wynn or myself to explain it to people in our constituencies. And they didn't give us any chance to give feedback when if they had, we could have easily said, well, that's not going to work. Or perhaps you say that in a slightly different way. To, to invoke my Southern Maryland roots, as Dr. Wynn said, it's hard to put lipstick on a pig. And we need to make sure the message is as sound as it can be up front so that everyone can be a much more effective messenger. It's hard. It's a terrible position to put Dr. Walensky in to ask her to come out and clean up a message that wasn't crafted appropriately in the first place. So let me ask you, Dr. Adams, you've mentioned tests, you've mentioned pills. These new antiviral pills need a prescription. They need a, a P positive PCR test, which can take, as we know, uh, 48 hours. You've just told us you ran a, a local health department, a state health department. 
how is this going to work? And what impact do you see it having on health equity, which is something I would love you to address before we finish today? Well, I think that it's not going to be as impactful uh, in the United States, at least not in the uh, immediate future, as, as many people are predicting that it could be. And what do I mean by that? I hear people saying game changer for these oral antivirals. It's not a game changer if you can't get people tested. And right now, people can't get tests in a timely manner. These pills have to be given within the first several days of symptom onset, ideally within the first two days of symptom onset. And right now, the average U.S. citizen cannot, is not getting access to testing in that manner. So we need a testing strategy to be able to appropriately administer these in the first place. And I just finished another interview where there was uh, talk about equitable distribution of, uh, of these, the, these pills. We need to make sure and treatments. We need to make sure the, the treatments are available in com communities, that providers have an algorithm to work through so that they understand who should be getting what and a timely um, testing strategy so that we can get people to the provider quickly and then the provider can quickly figure out, okay, you should get an oral antiviral. Oh, you should be admitted. You should get and get remdesivir. You should get monoclonal antibodies. And, and that's, that's something we haven't seen yet. It's still really clinician to clinician decision-making. And, uh, and we've got a lot of work to do if we want to optimize the delivery of treatments to people. Optimizing the delivery of treatments. Thank you both so much for joining me, Dr. Wen and Dr. Adams. Thank you for your insights about the next six months with Omicron and whatever else the coronavirus brings us. Get your vaccine, get your booster, wear your mask. That's how we get through the next six months safely. Agree. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.